This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. Back in the fall of 2017, we started a journey through the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. Now, if the, the Bible was a forest, we're taking a walk through the forest. We're not looking at every tree, um, but we're taking a somewhat brisk um, walk through this forest together. And we have not stopped doing that. We're continuing that. And uh, today, our journey brings us to Matthew chapter 14. And if you do have your Bibles, I would encourage you to get those open and have that in front of you. You'll want to be looking at the text as, as we uh, see what God has for us in there. But I want to begin by reading verses 22 to 33. Matthew 14, verses 22 to 33. Let me read. Immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone, and the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, And came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the son of God. This is God's word. This story is filled with basics, fundamentals to the Christian faith. And I heard a story one time that uh, kind of pecks at the fundamentals of Christianity. I wonder if you've actually heard this before. The story was told of a pastor uh, who was asked to visit the children's Sunday school class to see how it was going. He wanted to check in on them and see how the the Sunday school was going. In the first class he visited, he decided to ask a few questions to test the knowledge of these young students of the Bible. And so he asked one boy, who made the walls of Jericho fall down? And the boy looked rather shocked and replied, it wasn't me, Reverend. I promise you, it wasn't me. Well, the pastor was so surprised by the boy's response that he turned to the somewhat now embarrassed Sunday school teacher and said, well, what do you think of that? And the teacher replied, Tommy is a good boy, Reverend, 
He doesn't tell lies. If he says he didn't do it, I'm sure he didn't do it. Well, by this time, the pastor was completely flabbergasted. And uh, after he had finished up at church that day, he decided to inform the church elder board of the lack of biblical knowledge in the Sunday school and ask them to investigate. Well, they did. They investigated. And the chairman of the elder board came back uh, to the pastor with a report that said this, we see no point in making an issue of this incident. Let's just forget the whole thing, repair the walls and chalk it up as an act of vandalism. Now it used to be that I would say this is a totally fictitious story, but I'm not so sure anymore. Not at ABC, but somewhere this may have happened. And where it may or may not have happened is a reminder. It's easy for the fundamentals, the basics of Christianity to go missing. Jesus' disciples had been with him for some time now. And uh, they had witnessed him do incredible things. Up to this point in Matthew's gospel, the disciples have witnessed Jesus heal a paralyzed man. They had seen him raise a, a dead young girl to life. They had seen him heal two blind men. And in the story that immediately precedes this, the disciples watched Jesus feed upwards of 20,000 people with five loaves and two fish. But even though they had experienced this, saw this with their own eyes firsthand, they still succumbed to fear. Fear is a killer in the Christian life. And as we'll see, it stalls out the mission of Jesus. So here's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at two reasons we fear, what fear leads to, and what to do about it. Two reasons we fear, what fear leads to, and what to do about it. First, two reasons we fear. Here's the first reason. We'll see it in the story. The first reason is spiritual fatigue. Spiritual fatigue. One reason we succumb to fear is spiritual fatigue. In the story, Jesus makes his disciples get into a boat and row to the other side. Now, the body of water they're on is the Sea of Galilee. Just for some perspective, the Sea of Galilee is 13 miles long, seven miles wide. Okay? At its deepest point, it's about 150 feet deep. Okay, this is the body of water the disciples are on and they're rowing across this while Jesus goes up the mountain to pray. Now, while Jesus is there, a fierce wind comes up and it causes all sorts of trouble for the disciples. Now, the Sea of Galilee lies almost 700 feet below sea level, which makes it prone to downdrafts in the atmosphere. So they're battling this fierce wind. It's causing large waves. Now, try picturing that. Maybe you've experienced that. Rowing a boat in high wind, high waves, it's tough work. Now in John's account, the Gospel of John, in this, uh, the same story, he says they made about halfway. So they're three to three and a half miles out. That means three to three and a half miles away from shore when Jesus comes to them. But by this time, it says that it's the fourth watch of the night which means it's somewhere between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. So the disciples have been rowing for hours in this storm. So put yourself, put yourself in their position. Imagine working a long day, hard day, 12-hour shift, 14-hour shift. Uh, you moms with infants, uh, you can picture this very easily. You've been at it for 20 hours. Uh, what's your state of mind at that point? 
Or, or if you've been driving for 14 hours straight, what's your state of mind? You're delirious. You're delirious. You're tired, you're fatigued, you're worn out. You're, you're just not, you're not seeing things the way they actually are. It's no wonder the disciples thought they saw a ghost instead of Jesus. Now, if Jesus was here right now, I want to ha- ask him several questions. Lots of questions. First, Jesus, the text says you made your disciples get in the boat. Did you know what they were about to face? Well, of course you did. We'll explore that just in just a minute. Um, Next question, Jesus, um, why did you go up the mountainside to pray? Uh, why, why did you decide to come to them when you did? Um, what is up with your propensity for teaching spiritual truth in the middle of the night? I'd ask him all these questions. We'll get to some of those. Let me go back to the first one I asked. The text says Jesus made his disciples get in the boat. There's a good lesson for us here. Um, many of you, I'm sure, have heard the line, the safest place to be is in the will of God. The safest place to be is in the will of God. Now that's true in a sense, but sometimes people will confuse that to mean everywhere God sends you is safe and easy. Like a, like a walk through an arboretum, a garden. Here, <laughs> the disciples obeyed the direct command of Jesus and they end up in a storm as a result. This is important for us to understand. When storms hit us, we cannot assume we're outside the will of God. When storms hit, we can't assume that we've missed the command of God. Certain storms are part of the will of God for us because God's not just doing something for us. He's doing something in us. So faith often leads us through difficulty, not around it. Let me get back to some of the other questions I want to ask Jesus. Why did you go up the tranquil mountainside, Jesus, to pray while you've got your disciples and you've orchestrated all this, you've got your disciples battling a storm in the middle of a, of a lake? Why do you decide to come out to them at 3 a.m.? Why not alleviate their distress a little earlier in the night, 11 p.m., something like that? And Jesus, what is up with your affinity for teaching spiritual truth in the darkness. Because this isn't the only story where Jesus tries to teach his disciples something about himself in a late night excursion. What's up with that? For example, uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus sits his disciples down and he tells them to keep watch. Keep watch. And then he goes off by himself to pray. And three different times, he comes back to find them sleeping and he uses their sleepiness, he uses their drowsiness, their physical sleepiness, their physical drowsiness, he uses that to teach them something about spiritual vigilance. And I think the same kind of thing is happening here. Jesus is using a physical trial to teach them something about spiritual truth. He's using a physical trial to teach them something about spiritual truth. So simultaneously, Jesus is up on a mountainside praying While the disciples are battling the winds at sea, Jesus intentionally set them up to become physically and emotionally taxed in order to teach them something about faith. He's using the physical world to teach them something about spiritual reality. And it's this, spiritual fatigue is the precondition for fear. Spiritual fatigue causes us to see Jesus as a ghost rather than Lord of the sea. 
Fear is a gauge, in other words. It's a gauge that shows us all is not well with our faith and trust in the Lord. Fear is a gauge that shows you your spiritual vitality levels are low. Remember, the sharp contrast is between the disciples in the middle of a lake battling a a storm and Jesus on a tranquil mountainside praying. That's the contrast. That's the contrast. We fear because we've been rowing hard against the wind without spending time on the tranquil mountainside fellowshipping with our Heavenly Father. So when you're going through a trial or, or face a tremendous challenge, don't be surprised if all you see are ghosts who possess no authority to aid you in any way. Life is not a walk through the garden. Life is a sea voyage. And it becomes exponentially more difficult when our souls have not been properly cared for. So when you feel yourself tensed up physically, overwhelmed emotionally, psychologically crippled with anxiety, it is time to get to the mountainside. It's time to get to the mountainside. It's time to get alone with God, take a personal retreat, away from people, away from technology. You've got to get alone with God and you've got to tend to the soul because your fear is showing you your spiritual vitality levels are low. That's the first reason we fear. Spiritual fatigue leads to fear. Second reason we fear is we end up fixating on the obstacles. Fixating on the obstacles. So as the disciples are gazing at what they think is a ghost, Jesus identifies himself and then impulsive Peter speaks up as he typically does. And he says, if it's really you, Jesus, command me to come out to you on the water. Now, Peter's seen what Jesus is capable of. He knows this is possible. So let's not downplay, but let's not downplay Peter's faith here. Let's not downplay. Of of all people, he knows the dangers of the sea. What does Jesus do? Commands him to come on out. It's an imperative. Come on out. Come on out. Come on out. And so Peter starts walking on the water. It's incredible. He's walking on the water. But then the text says this, when he saw the wind, he was afraid and he began to sink. So Peter starts gazing at the wind, agitating the water, making it look nasty and dangerous and threatening. And and two things happened. He got scared and began to sink. Fear sinking, fear sinking. Those things are related. And then Jesus calls him on the carpet for it. You have little faith. Why'd you doubt? Why'd you doubt? He was doing so well. He had it in the bag. What happened? Well, it's pretty clear. He fixated on the obstacles. He fixated on the challenges. He fixated on the threats. This is where fear, worry, and anxiety live. We get caught up in the obstacles and the challenges and the dangers. We start thinking about those things all the time. We start perseverating on those things. That's all that's occupying our mental space. That's how we're using our time. And we stop doing the work of Hebrews 12 too, where we're told to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author, the perfecter of our faith. When we fixate on the obstacles, when we fixate on the challenges and the dangers, listen, we are creating a breeding ground for fear. So here's the exhortation. For every one look you give to the obstacle, to the challenge, to the danger, for every one look you give to that, give 10 looks to Christ. Give 10 looks to Christ. Because one of the reasons we fear is we start fixating on all the obstacles, all the challenges, all the dangers. 
Those are two reasons we fear. Second, what fear leads to. Fear, worry are, are not just unpleasant experiences. They cause other things to happen. And we see this in this story. They cause us to miss out on incredible opportunities. A lack of faith in Jesus is a breeding ground for fear and fear causes us to miss out on incredible opportunities. So let's, let's use our imaginations now and let's try to imagine, imagine that scene on the Sea of Galilee in the middle of the night. Fierce storm is raging. It's churning up the waves. The disciples are in the boat, rowing hard against the gale. Now imagine you're part of a film crew and you're in a nearby boat taping this whole episode to be shown on the Discovery Channel, a show entitled Deadliest Walks. And as the film crew is is rolling the camera, uh, capturing the disciples' ordeal, off in the distance you spot a figure getting closer and closer until you realize it's Jesus. This is the same guy you filmed yesterday feeding 20,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fish. And as as Jesus approaches the boat, Peter stands up and, and says something, but you can't make it out because you don't have your headphones on to listen to what Peter's mic is picking up. But it's clear to you, Peter stood up, he says something to Jesus, and then all of a sudden you see Peter hop out of the boat and begin walking on the water towards Jesus. And he's not sinking. Incredible. You think to yourself, this is incredible. We're gonna get an Emmy for this for sure. Now, in the blink of an eye, Peter begins to sink, but Jesus' saving hands are there to rescue him. Now, rewind the whole scene. Back to the beginning. Sliding doors. Uh, and replay it. But this time, okay, the disciples are rowing hard. They're in the middle of the lake. Cameras are picking up everything. This time, though, there's no figure off in the distance getting closer to the boat. Jesus isn't anywhere to be found. He's not there. Okay. Puzzled a bit by this whole thing, you see Peter stand up in the boat and with no warning, he jumps out. But this time, there's no walking on the water for him. He sinks like a rock beneath the surface, plummeting 150 feet to the bottom of the lake. The other disciples, in a panic, scurry about the deck, try to find rope to retrieve him, but it's too late. He's gone. Peter's dead. And, and you and the camera crew just stand there stunned, wide-eyed, and mouths open. Now let's compare the two scenarios. If you were on the film crew's boat watching the second scenario unfold, the one where Jesus isn't there, What would you think if out of nowhere, Peter stands up and then jumps out of the boat? You would probably think he's an unstable man. He's clearly not well. His mental health is probably in a very tough spot because you don't just stand up and hop out of a boat in the middle of a lake in 150 feet of water when there's a raging storm. You don't do that. Now, would your conclusion about Peter be different in the first scene, the one where Jesus is in the picture? He's standing 50 feet off the starboard side of the boat. If you see Peter hop up and and pop up out of the boat in an attempt to walk over to Jesus, do you conclude he's an unstable man? That he's not well? That there's something wrong with him? Would you conclude that when Jesus is standing 50 feet off the starboard side of the boat? Probably not, why? Why? Peter is attempting to do the same thing in both scenarios. Nothing has changed with Peter. His behavior, his actions are identical. In the two scenarios, the behavior is identical. There's only one difference between the two. 
And this one difference turns an illogical act into a miraculous one. The difference is Jesus is there and he commands him to do this. When Peter spots Jesus, he says to him, Jesus, command me to come out to you. You know what Jesus does? He doesn't say, Peter, do you have any idea how deep the water is? Do you have any idea how foolish it is for a human being to try to do what I'm doing? He doesn't say that. He commands Peter to walk out to him. The word come is an imperative form. Peter, get your took us out here. So for Peter, walking on water became a Jesus-sanctioned act. Our fear, worry, and anxiety prevent us from participating in Jesus-sanctioned acts. Jesus-sanctioned acts are opportunities for us to participate in feats that defy human ability. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. Now, for you and me, walking on water is not a Jesus-sanctioned act. When the Apostle Paul was in a shipwreck, it never dawned on him that he could just walk on water and get out of it. It's not a Jesus-sanctioned act. So when, when summer comes and the weather's warm again, n- none of you should be trying to walk across Lake Michigan. But what is a Jesus-sanctioned act for us? What is a Jesus-sanctioned act? Well, in Matthew 28, Jesus invites you and he invites me to participate in feats that defy human ability. Jesus says to us this, take a look. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, all states, all counties, all cities, all towns, all neighborhoods, all neighbors. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. This is our Jesus-sanctioned act. And this feat he's inviting us to defies human ability. See, what makes Peter's risk-taking reasonable is that Jesus is there. That's what makes Peter's risk-taking reasonable. What makes his risk-taking reasonable is Jesus is there. Now, for us, what makes our risk-taking reasonable? What makes our risk-taking reasonable? Do you know how Jesus finishes that invitation in Matthew 28? Take a look. Jesus says, and surely I'm with you always. I am with you always to the very end of the age. So today, at this moment in time, Jesus is standing 50 feet off the starboard side of your home and he's inviting you to participate in the extraordinary. Now, if he wasn't there, it would be foolish and bizarre, but he is there and he's inviting us to participate in the extraordinary. Things like loving our enemies, and praying for those who persecute us. Giving with radical generosity to those in need. Forgiving someone who's wronged you. These are Jesus-sanctioned acts that defy human ability, but fear, worry, anxiety often cause us to miss out on experiencing those feats. Like, Like Peter, we start fixating on all the obstacles more than we do the Lord of the sea, and we start getting nervous. We start getting nervous. We start saying to ourselves, ooh, be a great commission agent to my neighbor. Make a disciple out of my neighbor. Ooh, you know, they're not gonna want that. They'll just say no. 
pray for those who've been nasty to me? I can't do that. Give with radical generosity to to those in need in a climate like this? I don't know about that. I don't know if I can do that. Fear causes us to miss out on participating in the extraordinary. This is what fear leads to. Fear leads to this. It's got consequences. It causes us to miss out on participating in the extraordinary. So what do we do about it? What do we do about it? Well, what did Peter do about it? What did Peter do about it? Now, for a moment, (laughs) he was participating in a Jesus-sanctioned, conventional wisdom-defying endeavor. He was doing it. He was on top of the water. And then the text says this. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You have little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? You know, we look at the story and say that the key to eradicating fear is not getting too preoccupied with the waves rather than Jesus, not getting too wrapped up in the challenges rather than the God who dwarfs any challenge in front of you. And yes, that's true. Looking to Jesus rather than the waves is certainly a good thing to do. But in a way, that's debilitating. It's debilitating. Oh, you know, avoid fear. You just gotta look at Jesus more than you look at the challenges. Uh, To avoid fear, I just need to make sure that, that my spiritual vitality levels are high. Yeah, that's true. But in a way, it's debilitating because it puts 100% of the onus on us to weaken fear. What I want you to see is this. The key to eradicating fear is Jesus' extended hand to a sinking Peter. Because here's the reality. This side of heaven, you will, con- you will continue to struggle with fear. You will continue to struggle with worry. We are all Peter's. You can determine each year to stare at Jesus in the face uh, while you're dealing with daunting waves, but you will not do that perfectly. Yes, having a deep, robust, thoughtful, devotional life through which you recall the promises of God helps you expel fear, but you'll never do that perfectly. This side of heaven, you will succumb to fear. We are all Peters. You are a Peter. What I want you to see is the kind of Jesus Jesus must be for him to extend his hand to us when fear begins to sink us. He doesn't stand on top of the water with arms folded, barking at us like a drill sergeant, commanding us to lift our eyes off the waves and and get them back onto him. No, he doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. Even when the waves overwhelm us and when our fear cascades over the embattlements of our faith, Jesus extends his saving hand to us. You see, the key to eradicating fear is Peter's cry, Lord, save me. Lord, help me. Lord, I need you. 
That's it. This is a picture of the gospel. It's a picture of the gospel. Think about it. <clears throat> why does Jesus, why does Jesus engineer this scene to take place in the middle of a lake 13 miles long, seven miles wide? Why does this teaching on fear, faith, salvation take place here? It's an enactment of the gospel. <clears throat> one day, every one of us will be overtaken by the wind and the waves and will plummet to the darkest depths below unless we make Peter's cry our cry. Lord, save me. Lord, help me. Lord, I need you. Lord, you are the only one who can do these things. So Jesus' response to our cries of desperation is to extend his saving hands to us. That's it. Do you see in this story a reenactment of the good news of the gospel? We're all Peters and you will sink. The question is, will Peter's cry become your cry? Lord, save me. Lord, help me. Lord, I need you. Because if it is, Jesus' response to you is the extension of his saving hands. That's the key to eradicating fear. Let's pray. Jesus, we prove time and again the human race is afraid of its own shadow. I pray you would help us boldly admit our failure to believe and trust you. Break us of our propensity to be heroes and show us we're all Peters. We will doubt, we will fear, we will sink, but that's the point. That's the point. Because it's only then we're forced to make a decision. Do we allow our pride to plunge us to the depths below or in desperation do we cry out to you, Jesus, save me? Many of us, Jesus, need to say that to you now. So as we do, show us your extended hand, graciously, compassionately reaching out to pull us from the darkness. You are a beautiful savior. We worship you now. In your name, amen.